stand by the grey stone when the thrush knocks, and the setting sun with the last light of Durin's day will shine upon the keyhole. Durin's day? It is the start of the dwarves' new year, when the last moon of autumn and the first sun of winter appeared in the sky together. This is old news. Summer is passing. Durin's day will soon be upon us. We still have time. Time for what? To find the entrance. We have to be standing in exactly the right spot at exactly the right time. Then, and only then, can the door be opened. So this is your purpose? To enter the mountain? What of it? There are some who would not deem it wise. What do you mean? You are not the only guardian to stand watch over Middle-earth. I finished editing Lovely Bones last night. Oh, awesome. awesome. <laughs> that was such a good movie. I'm still thinking about that movie. It's nice that I've been thinking about that movie and less about Meet the Feebles. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That movie. Just, no, no. no. So, we won't um, talk about it today. <laughs> welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. So I'm in the midst of preparing for the White River Indie Fest. What is the White River Indie Fest? The White River Indie Fest is a very small local festival hosted in White River Junction, Vermont. And this year, it's going to be mostly virtual. So even if you are not local to us, we will make ourselves local to you and bring you some really great little independent foreign films. Awesome. Rosie, how about you? I've been making my way through Orange is the New Black with my daughter. So hopefully that's not too controversial. She is 17, but it's made for a lot of interesting conversations with my daughter about women's issues and also our federal incarceration system. And it kind of, it's been a really great series. I love Gingy Goen anyway, but it, it's just been really neat to watch and to watch my daughter really get into it. I've already seen it all the way through and she was wanting to watch it. We were looking for a series to watch together. So it's made for a lot of interesting discussions to have with my daughter who's about to become an adult it's shined some light on decisions that she doesn't want to make as an adult as well god i, I just i just still love that show I'm, I'm glad they ended it when they did still when you go back and watch it all over again it's really good yeah the first two seasons especially are oh just my gosh. such excellent television a couple nights ago i watched molly's game which i had not seen before i'm a gamer so movies and stuff about gaming has always been of interest to me. And of course, I knew a little bit about Molly and Molly's game, but uh, it was pretty cool seeing it. It was really well done. It's hyper real. So Aaron Sorkin made it. So it's got that West Wing kind of dialogue where they're all like, bam, 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 bam. Like nobody talks like that in real life, but it was cool. I happen to really like Aaron Sorkin's dialogue and some of it is I think his favorite film might also be my favorite film, The Lion in Winter, which also has this hyper-realistic dialogue where everyone speaks in metaphors and they have the cleverest comebacks at the tip of their tongue all the time. 
and it was referenced in the West Wing at some point. There was like a whole episode just about the lion in winter. And I I was like, okay, that's why. That's why this makes sense to me. I know that his dialogue drives some people nuts, but I love it. This week, we embark upon a great quest. That quest is... The Hobbit, an Ooh. unexpected journey. An unexpected journey that I've been expecting for weeks now. <laughs> I think you guys are still got something in your system having to do with either Meet the Feebles or the Lovely Bones. I'm not sure which. <laughs> I'm still thinking about the Lovely Bones. There was just so much to unpack in that movie that I still find myself thinking about that movie. And it's been over a week since I've watched it. I didn't confess this earlier, but in terms of media I've watched recently, my son and I watched the live action version of Beauty and the Beast the other day. And Stanley Tucci plays the credenza, the, you know, the old piano. And most of the time, you know, he's a piano, so you don't notice, but he shows up at the end of the film and he's like blurred out in the background of the scene and somehow still eating all the scenery. After seeing Stanley Tucci in another film, in a kid's film, I, I suddenly had, you know, returning thoughts about his performance in Lovely Bones and how mundane and creepy it was. Mm hmm. We will have those films inform what we watch. I have some interesting connections I saw, keeping in mind that The Lovely Bones was the last film Peter Jackson made right before this one. So we'll definitely talk about that. But before we do that, let's have a background to what else was going on in the year 2012. When I first did my 2012 in review, I was like, gosh, nothing really went on. And then I really started to dig in. I was like, oh, a lot really did go on because that was the year we lost Dick Clark and Adam Yalk of the BC Boys. Just to name a couple of really famous celebrities that passed on that year, there was a viral YouTube documentary called Coney 2012. It was a short documentary that was released to out the Ugandan cult and militia leader. He was wreaking some havoc. They released this film which eventually led to his arrest by the end of the year. And I felt like I should have brought that up for this show just because it, it just shows you how far film can reach sometimes and what things people can utilize to get a message across or to get the right person arrested in this case. Um, I mean, it's like, I don't even want to mention that it was the 60th anniversary of the queen ascending to the throne, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's just, it, it's that in, to me kind of shies a comparison because we're talking about films, but that is an important date as well. That was also the year Roblox was hacked, <laughs> which I'm sure caused a lot of pain and suffering for parents across the land. Putin was elected president. Um, a pastel version of Scream uh, by Edward Munch sold for $120 million that year. A couple of um, major mass shootings that happened this year, which if you live in the United States, you know that not much has changed since then. There was a mass shooting during Dark Knight Returns in uh, Aurora, Colorado, where 58 people were injured. That was also the year of the Sandy Hook shooting. 
Hurricane Sandy, the largest hurricane on record in the Atlantic, hit in October of that year and caused a lot of devastation, 233 dead, $68.7 billion worth of damage. And it also happened to be the year that Windows 8 was released. And I'll also cap it off with, by the end of the year, Washington State was the first state to legalize marijuana. <laughs> That's the very Cliff Notes version of 2012. What I remember about 2012 was the sense that the fall, like leading up to to the election and then everything afterwards just seemed to accelerate the sense of like how much more terrible shit can happen Mm -hmm. at the end of this year. Mm -hmm. And that that was kind of the feeling going into the theater to see this film actually was sort of a sense of relief of like, okay, please just take me away from this news cycle about this terrible school shooting where, you know, all these little kindergartners were killed and just everyone was totally shaken and devastated. And that happened right around the same time that this film came out. Yeah, this movie definitely came out, came out at a really good time because everybody needed an escape at that point. Tried to interject before when you mentioned that Washington State legalized marijuana. There is a lot of speculation that the Hobbit's pipe weed is in fact (laughs) is not old toby it's something else (laughs) it's old toby quotation marks (laughs) there is speculation (sighs) all right johanna you want to tell us a little bit about the production of the hobbit and unexpected journey sure folks may remember there was a lot of hullabaloo around the release of the hobbit and the previews at Comic-Con because Peter Jackson was planning to use a much higher frame rate for this picture. Normally films are shown in 24 frames per second. And although there were versions of the films made at that frame rate for standard theaters, there were also versions of the film made at 48 frames per second, which was designed really to decrease the blur during the action sequences, which can be especially dizzying in 3D, but Even in 2D, it looks much crisper with all of those details. Of course, some people, when they saw the clips in 48, said the opposite. They said, this is too real. It's dizzying. My eyes don't know where to go. The details are overwhelming. And they said that it looked more like a home movie or like they were watching real actors on the set instead of a film of the actors on the set. And that it was taking them out of the film a little bit. I feel like 60 frames per second was unnecessary and not in keeping with the Lord of the Rings films and also not in keeping with the genre. I mean, this isn't the Matrix. I know that they wanted to future proof it and thought that 60 frames per second would allow them to do that with whatever future technologies come out. And when they go back and special edition the fuck out of these, like Lucas does, (laughs) they were going to want a higher frame rate to give them more to work with. I mean, you identified this about wanting to future-proof the film, but some of it is they were using red cameras, which they had used in Lord of the Rings, but now they were using Epic Red which had a 5K sensor and was able to capture anywhere between 1 and 120 frames per second. What's great about these cameras is that they were lightweight, very mobile, and had an interchangeable lens mount. So they could continually 
you know, get the exact kind of shot they were looking for in each of these takes. So that was, you know, something that drew a lot of attention to the film even before it was released. But it actually went through quite a bit of development hell before that even happened. First, they were held up by a lawsuit, which the Tolkien estate put forward because they were supposed to get 7.5% of all profits from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Apparently they hadn't gotten their fair share. So they sued United Artists and wouldn't allow filming for any future Tolkien-related projects to continue until after they had settled. The Tolkien estate won the lawsuit in 2009, receiving a reported $220 million in compensation. As far as I can tell, it was well worth paying out that chunk of change because this first part of the Hobbit trilogy alone grossed $1 billion worldwide. So $220 million is, you know, just, just a small chunk of that. They were also held up by a union dispute between the International Federation of Actors and the New Zealand government. Apparently, there were laws in New Zealand at the time which prohibited union contracts with actors because they treated actors as employees, and this caused a great deal of trouble. The IFA told actors they weren't allowed to work in New Zealand. New Zealanders across the country then protested to get the laws changed so that they would be able to film The Hobbit here. And as a result of those protests, the New Zealand government actually changed their laws so that actors would be treated as independent contractors, thereby resolving the dispute. Originally, the films were planned to be just two in number, An Unexpected Journey and There and Back Again. But they decided to expand the story to include a third film. We'll get more into that when we discuss the content. But the main idea was that they realized this was their one chance to fully tell the story of Bilbo Baggins' journey and the effect that had on Middle Earth and how it fits into the larger story. So after sitting with these drafts of a two-piece film for a while, they added in parts of appendices from The Lord of the Rings and other areas of the story that hadn't been fully explored before. Thereby, we ended up with a full trilogy for this series. The screenplay was written by Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh, and Philip Aboyans, the usual team, plus one more, Guillermo del Toro, my man, who around this time that he was working on The Hobbit, he was also doing Pacific Rim. That might come up as we discuss some of the action scenes. Those be the notes. I think now maybe we're ready to go to the lobby for, for a little snack. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. The Hobbit is one of the first adult books I ever read. I found it on my dad's bookshelf when I was five or six. So I've been a fan for a long, long, long time. I'm a huge Tolkien fan. 
And food plays a big role in Tolkien's stuff. Both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings start with a feast. There's a feast that sort of kicks off both of those epic adventures. In this particular film, before we even get to the feast, there's references to fish, potatoes, chamomile, red wine, cheese. Tolkien mentions food a lot. And these are epic films, so I'm going to be talking about whole meals here, but I'm only going to highlight one item of the meal. Otherwise, we'd spend the whole time talking about food. So these are epic films, and they're to be watched without distraction. So the idea is I'm recommending an entire meal that you eat before you sit down to watch the film, because these are long films and you're going to get hungry if you don't eat a good meal before each one of them. And so for this first film, we're going to start out with the first meal of the day, the meal that Bilbo skipped when he woke up and Thorne and company were already gone. Breakfast. Tolkien was part of a, a movement of looking back to medieval times for things, sort of it was in concert with the Art Nouveau movement and things like that. Medievalism was only one of the inspirations. In general, he was trying to create a mythology for Britain. He felt that there was a, a long tradition of mythology in other cultures, but Britain really didn't have one. There was, you know, some Arthurian legends and things like that, but he wanted a co cohesive mythology. And so there's a lot of British nostalgia wrapped up in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And it's a nostalgia for a time that never existed. There's a lot of nostalgia for his youth. So it is equally Victorian as it is medieval. There are things like fish and chips that make an appearance in The Lord of the Rings. Now, fish and chips didn't exist in medieval Europe. Say it with me, potatoes. <laughs> potatoes. Potatoes. That needs to be a gif. Anyway, potatoes. Potatoes. Not potatoes. <laughs> the potatoes were a New World food. They didn't exist in Europe prior to contact with the Americas. So one thing we got to keep in mind is these foods are not authentic medieval. They are Tolkien-esque. By all means, breakfast is have a feast for all of these movies have a feast but the one thing i'm going to recommend you have with your breakfast feast beans and toast beans and toast is something that those who grew up in britain particularly tolkien's youth would have had it seems a little strange in the u.s but some of our listeners from other formerly british territories or the uk might understand it a little bit better I'm telling you to actually cook breakfast, not just like in this country where we're used to, we don't make breakfast. We throw cereal in a bowl and that's it. I'm talking about make a meal before you watch this. And that meal should include beans and toast. <laughs> it's traditional to use navy beans. I use kidney beans. You can use whatever you want. Just use some good beans. I recommend dry beans. And I made them in an instant pot the night before. All these things I'm telling you guys about, I actually did. So I'm not just <laughs> recommending recipes that I don't actually eat before I watch these movies. Here's the recipe. You cook your beans the night before because they take forever. So you don't want to start cooking them first thing in the morning because you won't eat lunch until two in the afternoon. So cook the beans the night before. Instant pot, if you have one, makes it super quick. 
use three cups of water in the pan with a bouillon cube. I used a packet from a chicken ramen. So I just used the chicken ramen packet instead. It worked great. That's what you do when you make the beans, the three cups of water. And everything else is what you add to it the next morning in a regular pot on the stove with two teaspoons of Worcestershire sauce, six tablespoons of ketchup, two tablespoons of tomato paste, three tablespoons of brown sugar, one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, a half teaspoon of garlic powder, a half teaspoon of black pepper, and a teaspoon of salt. And you simmer it for 20 minutes, and then it's good to go. You make crusty bread toast. Get get the good bread with crust with the the good crust on it. Toast that up. You want it to be really crusty because you're going to pour the beans on top of the toast. And you got to <laughs> eat it with a knife and fork. That is the main thing. Now, you you might want to supplement that with all the other things that a, ba- a good Bagginses would eat. I did have Earl Grey tea with this. There you go. That is breakfast, the first meal of the many meals we're going to be talking about as we go through this. Now that we've had our first breakfast, I guess I can go ahead and, and start this off. The Lord of the Rings, that trilogy came out first, but we are watching it in chronological order. So we're watching the first Hobbit film. So it starts out with Bilbo Baggins, uncle of Frodo, and he, you know, sits down, write down what really happened, how he landed the ring, how he went on this big adventure. Uh, If you remember in the Lord of the Rings films, he did mention that there was more to the story, but he didn't go into it. So he starts writing out the story of how he started traveling with this band of misfits and a wizard on a journey to help the dwarves basically reclaim their land. Gandalf the Grey tricks him into this because he's like, you want to go on an adventure? And Bilbo's like, no, (laughs) I have it good here. I don't want to go on an adventure. I have all the comforts of home. I have my family. I have my friends. Life is good. I don't want to disrupt it. Not ready to rock the boat. I'm fine. But thanks for the offer. Then Gandalf starts sending, starts sending the dwarves to his home. <laughs> one by one. And, and apparently there was a party at his house that he didn't know about because Gandalf the Grey kind of uh, started something. And um, they had this big feast. Amazingly enough, Bilbo has enough food for everyone somehow. I'm sure it's some wizard magic was involved in that. They tried to get him to sign this contract to join this crew to be the 14th person to help them reclaim their land. He's like, I, I don't know, man. I'm good. Thanks for coming. I'm glad you guys had a good time. I'm not going to go on this adventure. Wakes up to a clean house the next day, which, you know, if you saw how they were partying in this house, there's no way this house would be that clean. Again, I think wizard magic was involved. But wakes up the next day, sees the contract still sitting there unsigned, and he's like, everybody's gone. They've left without me. Okay, now I want to do it. So then he goes and catches <laughs> up with them. And then <laughs> and then we move forward from there into the story, which was glorious. I loved watching it. Truth be told, this was the first time I had watched it because I never got around to watching the Hobbit films. So I was really excited that you guys took me up on this idea of doing Lord of the Rings because I really wanted to get into these movies, but I didn't want to get into them by myself. To be honest with you, I wanted to watch them and discuss them with my people here. So thank you so much for agreeing to this. 
<laughs> I didn't realize it was going to be as much of a project as it was going to become, but I'm, I'm here for it. So thank you. And I'm going to pass the ball to one of you guys who wants to take it from here. <laughs> one of the things that I love about this film is how there's Thorin and Gandalf and then everyone else, you know, yeah. like that there's this aura of seriousness around Thorin, you know, like that they're all partying and joking and having a good time. And then suddenly Thorin shows up and it's all serious business, you know, like, oh, he's here, you know, and it's, yeah. there's an element of that that you kind of miss in your day-to-day -day life. You know, I don't have anybody in my life who has this aura of like, this person's a serious person with serious emotions and serious goals, and I will revere them, you know, that, <laughs> and every time Thorin steps forward from the crowd, immediately the villain or whoever it is recognizes him of like, oh, this is a real guy, you know, all the rest of you are idiots and jokers, but like <laughs> Thorin, like something about him, just everybody can immediately identify it as like, he's, he's the guy, he's the hero. Yeah, even when he shows up, to Bilbo Baggins' house, you know, they're like, oh, he's here. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that people who are fans of the books sometimes complain about or nitpick about the movies is stuff that get changed. For example, one of my friends has complained about this right after we saw the movie. I've also heard um, Stephen Colbert complain about this, uh, who's a super fan, which is in The Fellowship, which we'll get to later, Glorfindel was pretty much written out, as were a lot of other characters, and his the stuff he did was given to Arwen. I'm totally okay with that. One of the things I like is that the changes that Peter Jackson and Philippa Boyens and Fran, the things they changed, I like. At first I was like, oh, does The Hobbit really need to be three movies? Now he's just dragging it out. <laughs> And there may be a little bit of that, but the stuff he adds is great. And part of that is Thorin's backstory, which we never get in the actual Hobbit. You can find it in Tolkien's notes and a lot of other places. Radagast is like just briefly mentioned, but I liked his inclusion here. The White Council also just mentioned, but we actually get to see the White Council here. So I like the expansions that he made. I think they really add to things. I also really appreciate adding Gandalf's side of the story so that we can see what he's up to, because narratively, when you're reading The Hobbit, it often feels like everything's going fine. Gandalf leaves to go somewhere else. They fall into trouble. Things get really bad. And then Gandalf shows up suddenly at the last minute to save them. And this happens again and again throughout The Hobbit. And like, if you're a kid reading the book, none of that is a problem. You know, you're like, oh, thank goodness Gandalf's here again. But as an adult, you're like, Gandalf, like, just don't fucking leave. You Clearly these people can't handle it. <laughs> and so this at least explains, like, Gandalf has serious business to attend to. He's working on something that's bigger than all of them. And that's why he keeps leaving or falling behind and then having to come back. The book is definitely much more kid-like. So The Hobbit is like Tolkien's kid fairy tale. It was sold as, and it probably was intended to be the prelude to The Lord of the Rings, but it's totally different in tone. And the connections to the Lord of the Rings are really small. So the ring, it's hinted at that it's the one ring and they talk about that, but it's never really discussed in the book that much. Like 
you get that that Gandalf knows something about that ring. He's like, that story has the ring of truth. Like he definitely hints that he knows something. There's also other things that he goes off and does. And they're like, oh, that's just the way wizards are. What I really like about these Hobbit films is that they're not adaptations of the Hobbit per se. They are, but it's pretty clear they were making a prequel series to the Lord of the Rings. And this was going to close a lot of the gaps and answer what was going on beforehand, what was leading up to the events in the fellowship. The Hobbit was originally published in 1937, which is interesting to think about in terms of what's going on narratively. Like there's all these bubblings of, things aren't going well, like the dragon is a bad sign, you know, like that there is sort of this sense of things about to come. And the movie does a great job of making that much more explicitly a narrative about pre-World War II, this enemy that we just defeated is about to come back. I really love that they highlighted that, especially thinking about Lord of the Rings being published in 1954 on the other side of all of this, on the other side of World War II when Germany had risen again and that they had had to defeat them a second time. I have one phrase at the top of my notes that just says landscape porn, which (laughs) is such great landscape porn throughout this entire film. We have some great, great, actors in smaller parts here for example hugo weaving who we last talked about on this show when we did the matrix is elrond and he is so great because elves are traditionally always portrayed as like not serious and sort of like they take life in happy-go-lucky ways and stuff like that and here you have the king of the elves who like has a lot to worry about. He's super concerned because elves think in centuries. They plan out, you know, what what is going to happen here, you know. And Hugo Weaving brings a gravity to Elrond that I was not expecting before I saw him in The Lord of the Rings, but here too. Also, Galadriel, Kate Blanchett, who is the most regal. She's just like the perfect Galadriel. And... Again, Galadriel doesn't appear in The Hobbit, but I'm glad that they had her here, the White Council. And then I got a I got a shout out to two two wizards, two sorcerers who also happen to be the two doctors. <laughs> Doctor Strange and the Doctor from Doctor Who. Basically, we oh. get Sylvester McCoy who was the 7th Doctor as Radagast the Brown, and Doctor Strange, Benedict Cumberbatch, as the Necromancer. Perfect, perfect, mm, perfect casting. So underneath landscape porn, I also have more songs. Of course, you know, we'll get to this when we talk about Lord of the Rings, but songs don't play as great a role in that trilogy as they do here. And... The text of these songs, you know, appear in the book, and it's great to see them realized in all of these different musical genres, which you can only kind of picture when you're reading the text on the page. But the use of songs throughout this 
film in particular is fantastic. I got my Hobbit taken away from me. I was visiting my relatives in northern Ohio, and my older cousin, I was singing one of the songs, and it talks about the faggots are breaking, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And she was like, what? And I'm like, faggots, you know, which in medieval Europe, we're talking about bundles of sticks that were burned. Well, because I was using the word faggot, I pointed it out in the book. They're like, show me that. And I, I did. And then they took the book away from me. So, oh, no. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, yes, even as a child, I felt I was beset upon by Philistines who did not understand good literature. And um, I grew up listening to the hobbit on record like i like like with star wars i had the mult i had the box set it was like almost an inch thick of the hobbit with the book and it was basically the records of the rankin bass film which we'll talk about in a future episode so in my head is stuck the damn hippie songs that are <laughs> so getting to hear like goblin town redone was great I really enjoyed that. I'm glad they kept music in this because there are songs throughout The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. You just don't think about them that often. And speaking of the Goblin King, all right, you guys, once again, I've I've got to burst your hoity-toity bubble because you talk about how <laughs> gross Harry the Rabbit was in Meet the Feebles. But basically, Radagast has got bird shit on him all the time. Like, yeah. and, and then and then you get the Goblin King. So don't tell me there isn't a through line here going back to the earliest days of Peter Jackson's work. Yeah, there, there definitely is. When I saw that, I was like, you mean this wizard is living with bird shit on him 24-7? That was the first thought that came to my mind. I don't think I realized it was bird shit. I actually thought it was like, you know, that like moss or like mold that grows on trees. Like, yeah. that's what I thought it was. I thought it was that like lime green scaling you see on, on tree bark. But obviously, obviously it's grosser than I thought. <laughs> I had that exact thought too. When he took his hat off and you saw the bird nest in his hair, I was like, oh, that was grosser than I thought. Okay. Okay, that's bird shit. All right. Okay. Now my brain is ready for that. <laughs> the Goblin King is kind of gross, too. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Insanely gross. I mean, to the point that, like, I think my brain was just like, and I'm in a different film right now. I'll get back to the film that I was in before with the unusually hot dwarves. <laughs> and, and exactly. The, the landscape part in just a second. But unusually hot dwarves right i mean that was I'm a very interesting artistic choice and i think they nailed it <laughs> i'm just glad i wasn't watching this movie with any of my friends that like to crack short jokes at me because i know that i would have had waves of them coming at me watching this film because yeah they were hot <laughs> so i mean some of them were very hot so but yeah it... yeah for those who don't know <laughs> rosie's a dwarf uh, yeah i'm only five feet tall so I've lived with short jokes all my life, my whole life. They're like, oh, you're a hobbit. Uh. And it's like, you're so original. Thanks. Next, why don't you ask me where my five sisters are? Good Lord. But anyway, I heard all the hobbit jokes growing up because I'm, I'm small and I, I, I can neither confirm nor deny whether or not I have hairy feet. 
So there's that. <laughs> but yeah. I think one of the things that I love most about this piece of the film adaptation is how it balances humor and playfulness on one end and then also manages to handle serious, earnest moments just as well. And it gets that balance really perfectly. One of the scenes that I think handles that pivot very well is the scene with the White Council, where there's some jokes back and forth with Galadriel and Gandalf being able to communicate through a mind meld and that she's like, I know what you're up to. And there's some playfulness there. And then a minute later, she asks very seriously, why the Hobbit? You know, why, why this guy? And Gandalf responds, Saruman believes it is only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. I have found it is the small, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Simple acts of kindness and love. Why Bilbo Baggins? Perhaps it is because I am afraid, and he gives me courage. It's just, like, so, you know, so present, earnest, thoughtful. And it's moments like this that I think create that deep connection with with audiences of a variety of ages and make the stakes seem really high you know that this this isn't just a fantasy story that happens in a mythology that we don't really even deserve to access because we're americans it's like it's connected to to much bigger things and very well articulated and i'm big on those small acts of kindness you know it's good. Just do, go out and do something nice for somebody. It makes you feel good. It makes them feel good. It it's, puts forth positive energy out, out into the world. We all need a little bit of that. So I actually really love that message in that moment in the movie. Well, it's, it nicely foreshadows a moment that is sort of reflected on later as a turning point in this overall story when Bilbo spares Gollum's life. They're thereby both setting off a chain of events that causes everyone a great deal of trouble, but then ultimately come comes around to to the good side. And I think I think that pivotal moment, they also do a great job of showing Bilbo wrestling with I'm here on this quest with all of these other dwarves who, you know, are great warriors and am I the sort of person who can take a life? And in that moment, he decides no. And then, you know, a few scenes later sort of figures out what violence is for and and what kind of warrior he is and that he will defend his friends to the death, but he's not going to go seek violence or glory for himself. Eric, actually, maybe you could help me out with something that I've been puzzling over. What is the difference between goblins and orcs? Do you do you have a good geek explanation for this? So the short answer is no. <laughs> the longer answer is... So keep in mind, I first read this when I was in elementary school. and 
I am in my 50s now, and over time, so much other stuff gets added in there. So the Dungeons and Dragons interpretations of goblins and orcs, and they've appeared in so many other fantasy novels and stuff like that, that I kind of get confused as to what's Tolkien official and what's not Tolkien official. In my head canon, if you want to pick that, if you want to get at that, the idea is that goblins are an older race possibly created by Melkor or one of the earlier evils that came. Orcs are a goblin-human hybrid bred for the War of the Ring. And in fact, they talk about that when they talk about in The Lord of the Rings, the mighty uruk We see the creation of the orcs as we know them in The Lord of the Rings. They are bigger, more brutal, go out in the day. Goblins you only see at night and in caves and stuff like that. That's my take on things. There's mythology, there's fantasy role-playing games, there's all these other things that have bombarded my head over the years that I can't keep straight. What is Tolkien's official differentiation? But that's my headcanon difference between the two. So you'll see goblins in the Mines of Moria in when we get to later films that are you know they're smaller and faster and the orcs are big beefy brutal looking anyway take it for what it's worth good enough for me okay i like that um, explanation thank you for clearing that up i just thought that they that the arcs were like a darker uglier cousin <laughs> <laughs> and i mean dark is an evil yeah. Well, yeah. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, we could get into a whole whole thing about, like, are the orcs racialized? But maybe we'll save that for the next trilogy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that wraps it up. Be sure to look for us on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us at gc8podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight podcast, all one word at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. And this is Johanna. Signing off. Get off. Like, just don't fucking leave. You, clearly these people can't handle it. <laughs> <laughs>